This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by Roadmap Writers. Check out their newly revamped on-ramp program, which gives writers month-long access to educational webinars, interactive pitch prep sessions, and online pitching opportunities. To learn more, visit RoadmapWriters.com and use the code ROADMAP, all caps, all one word, to save $15. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we are doing our monthly Paper Scraps episode with feedback on two Paper Tease entries and an overview of some TV writing news from the past couple of months, including articles about the importance of diversity in the writer's room, as well as the 2018 Emmys. <laughs> And let's start things off with our regular Paper Tease feedback session. And in case you don't know, we have a regular competition called Paper Tease that is a free competition where you can submit your TV writing teaser of eight pages or less and you format any genre at paperteam.co slash teaser to get feedback on air potentially, as well as perhaps win prizes and be eligible for our Paper Team mentorship. So let's get into the two from this week. And the first one is Alma by Monica Hanush. And in Alma, we open on a tropey old sci-fi depiction of an evil robot giving a monologue threatening the human race, which is cut short by a casting director who asks the robot to, quote, go heavier on the accent and throw some beep, beep, boop sounds in there. We pull out to see this robot is actually an actress auditioning for a casting director to play the role of a robot in a movie. The robot... Alma then clashes with the casting panel over their offensive stereotypes and representation of SI, or synthetic intelligence, the politically correct term, as AI and robot are now considered slurs. Alma gets into a heated argument with a bigoted casting director that soon gets physical, and she is dragged away by robot security, whom she calls traitors. What did you think of Alma? So I thought this was a really interesting and unique concept and world and a really fun twist on real world issues. It's it's kind of a it's a great premise, honestly. Some really funny, clever lines in there. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm uh, in the same boat. I really enjoyed this teaser. Uh, it kind of reminded me of Futurama. If you remember this this whole Calculon yeah. sort of ongoing narrative where the show likes to roast the entertainment industry and how TV executives work. There's a whole sequence in the original run of the show where uh, the TV executives were actually robots and sort of this AI construct deciding how to program the TV network. But Alma, I thought was, as you said, like sort of like a fresh take on political correctness and today's society through the lens of AI, or should I say SI? Yeah. And one of the strengths I think about this piece is that the exposition about the world and robots place in it felt pretty natural because it came out as an argument or a conflict over these differing worldviews and political correctness. Yeah, absolutely. I would say my one sort of like slight bump in terms of the pros or uh, the way the world was exposited kind of wanted more descriptions of those robots up front, especially initially from the get-go. The word robot doesn't really mean much to me uh, because especially for fans of science fiction, we've seen, you know, thousands of permutations of what AI and robots look like. So just saying the word robot or AI doesn't really mean anything. Uh, however, uh, seen later, the writer does go into more detail describing those robots as sort of a cross between the Star Wars robots and the Westworld hosts. So I kind of wanted that description up front quite literally from the get-go and then as the scene develops and you realize uh, this is actually a feature film, and then I did want a little bit more um, explanation of not just what Alma looks like, 
but also sort of extrapolating that idea to the other robots uh, once that conceit is revealed, essentially stating in the pros, maybe, you know, this is like a bad version, but essentially saying that, you know, the film crew has a mix of humans and humanoid robots or some kind mm. of sense that, oh, there's an environment where robots are instead of just the word robot. Sure. Yeah. I think in relation to saying it up the top, I think there's a deliberate attempt to mislead the reader into thinking it is like a lost in space kind of robot that's that old scientific trophy one. And then we're revealed that it is a more modern kind of one. So I see why they don't describe it there, but I understand painting a picture of the world later in the scene is, is interesting. You know? Right. But again, the in terms of the visual of the piece, it does say extreme close-up on a robot. So sure. even if you are going after that lost in space of 1950s era, uh, old school, horrible robot vibe, in that case, I would lean into it in the pros. And then, you know, in the pros later, you can sort of subvert those expectations. But as it stands, just the word robot doesn't conjure up anything in my mind, especially when it says right after her joints creak with every uh, deliberately stiff gesture, her mm -hmm. eyes glow red. I'm not quite sure if that's, you know, a Wally robot, if it's like a silo, if it's the old school Cylon, if it's a new school Cylon, if it's, sure. you know, so that just to me as a sort of like a science fiction uh, perspective, I thought I wanted slightly more confirmation on that level. Okay. Yeah. I think the ellipsis kind of worked for me as a reveal there, but I understand your, your perspective on that. So my criticism would be the scene work felt a little bit repetitive at times, coming back to the same kind of points about the discrimination against robots and that kind of thing. Like it, the, the same points were being reached over and over, whereas other points did uh, expand our understanding of this, this conflict in this world, which is great, but it did feel like it maybe could be tightened a little bit in that scene. And then my main thing was just the tone. I couldn't quite land on how we were meant to feel about all this. At first, it comes off as a pretty straight comedy, as we're almost you know, laughing to ourselves at the strangeness of the situation, the comedic concept, and that reveal, and the familiarity of this under in a new skin. But then this argument with the casting director gets very real and very heated, and she's flipping tables, and it becomes more dramatic. And I'm just not sure whether we're meant to be genuinely sympathetic in a dramatic way to the plight of robots in this world and see how horrible these people are to them, or if the situation is being played for this absurdist comedy of it all. I, I can definitely see your point there. I actually like that idea of sort of juggling between those two tones. It, it reminded me almost of also of the comeback, the Lisa Kudrow TV show that juggled between sort of the pathos of the situation as well as the absurd humor and the, the satire of it all. So I think, you know, you couldn't even lean into that. Uh, I think that's an option. Yeah. Uh, just to go back quickly on what you said about sort of the repetitive nature of the situation. I also noticed in the pros, there is some repetition in terms of the physicality of it. A couple of people uh, slouching multiple times that caught my uh, So I think there is some repetitive nature, as you pointed out, that could be sort of streamlined and uh, focused. In terms of micro notes on the page, the main thing I noticed was just the continueds at the bottom and the top of all the pages where the scene was continuing on, especially in a teaser, but just in general, I don't think you really need this continued option turned on. And it gets out of hand. I think I saw a continued brackets too on one of them as well. And you just don't really want that at the end of every page if you're having a long scene. Yeah, I think uh, June August made a huge point in his update of Highland of removing this continued because it, it is cumbersome to some point, especially when uh, the prose and the page is so good to look at it. It has a lot of white spaces. It's simplified. It's streamlined. Whereas if you just add those like continued at the top at the bottom of the page, it just adds production elements that are not needed, especially in a spec sample. Yeah, I think it is sort of an outdated convention at this point in most modern screenplays do away with the continueds. To finish on Alma, what makes us want to read on or perhaps not? 
I think just in general, the strength of this concept and, and the, the way in which they've played with expectations and related it back to the real world makes me want to see what the rest of this world is like. I want to see what happens when she walks out that door and what the whole world looks like and what her place is in it. And, the, you know, I'm curious about how we get a show out of this. Like, is it going to be sort of like a struggling robot in New York trying to make it as an actress? Or is it a broader kind of conversation about these you know, big sci-fi themes and whatever? But either way, I'm intrigued. And I think the teaser did a good job of hooking me in. Mm. What if the robot is a contract killer played by Kristen Wiig and it's the companion to Barry on HBO? <laughs> sure, uh, why not? But I, yeah, I agree. I, I feel like the concept is strong. Uh, the fact that it reminded me of, you know, all my circuits and uh, Calculon and all those uh, Futurama episodes uh, is, is a huge plus to me because I think it speaks to the potential of satire as well as sort of the emotional background that could be added and the pathos that could be added uh, to that show. So I would love to read more. All right, our next paper tease submission is called Shadowlands by Christopher J. Hall. The summary is this. A 69 Pontiac GTO drives with a purpose on a desert road as it's being chased by the cops. The action suddenly pauses, revealing that we're inside a video game played by a 22-year-old named Eddie. His game is interrupted by a call informing him that his father, Aaron, has passed away. And then we fade out to him on the roof of a garage and then the funeral of his father as he talks in VO about his dad. Through flashback, we see eight years prior Eddie receiving a trophy at a young video game designer conference while his dad looks on unimpressed. Once back at the funeral, we flash back again six years prior to their garage basement as Aaron, the father, activates a large Tesla coil-like machine that opens a black hole. While Eddie tries to close the black hole, Aaron sticks his hand in and gets stuck. The Tesla coil explodes, closing the black hole. Aaron loses his hand and reveals that they have created a portal to another dimension. Uh, what are your thoughts on this, Alex? I'm a bit torn by Shadowlands, I have to admit. On one hand, uh, no pun intended, <laughs> on one uh, stuck, uh, you know, in the wormhole hand, I did like the sort of the climactic flashback piece where this father opens a wormhole and gets hypnotized by it. On the flip side, I thought there were a lot of sort of hat on a hat on a hat element mm -hmm. because it jumps from a video game to the protagonist getting a call about his dead father. Then we time cut to another setting with a funeral. And then at the funeral with voiceover, we get a short flashback and then we get back to the funeral and then we flash back again to the climactic flashback. Uh, it's sort of seven pages of uh, jumping around for little narrative payoff. Yeah, there was a lot going on in the teaser. And, you know, it, it's unfortunate because elements of it, like you said, that scene with the, the Tesla coil were really interesting and, and pretty well done, but just the jerking the reader around so much from place to place and transition and flashback and it really doesn't ground us in this world and lead us in gently to this story and hook us and more kind of leaves us feeling disoriented. Yeah, and I feel like the real crux of the teaser was in that last sort of large flashback at the end when the dad opens a wormhole because it has, you know, the most action, it has the most tension and arguably exposes character the most. And in terms of scene, it's the most unique and interesting setting compared to pretty much the rest of the teaser because funerals and exposition over voiceover has been done many times. So I feel like uh, that moment in of itself could have been the teaser or maybe you could have the funeral as sort of the framing device for the flashback of the wormhole so you could clarify that we'll be seeing Eddie in present day and not as a eight-year-old kid. Yeah, I was thinking the exact same thing. I think you can do away with the scene in the video game and the call and the standing on the 
the roof and really just lean into that one scene because it creates enough questions and mystery and revealing of character in and of itself. And then, like you said, using the funeral as the framing device. I think just those two scenes by themselves would create an effective enough teaser. Yeah, and as it stands, I felt like there were a lot of sort of this telling and showing when you couldn't do away with the telling because voiceover, and we've commented on this previously, voiceover is oftentimes a crutch for exposition instead of uh, something that needs to be there. And I felt here it was kind of a grace note that felt kind of unnecessary. And so if you do bookend with the funeral and have the flashback as that centerpiece, and I could see Vio being useful there, but it seemed again like another sort of storytelling device on top of essentially a dream sequence and a time cut mm-hmm. and two flashbacks. Yeah, I think there was a slight habit of overexposition in the script. And one example I'll give of that is when he's talking about what kind of man his father was. And when they're describing his picture in the funeral, it says in this kind of meta commentary in the description, you can almost tell from looking at him, the man was a scientific genius. And then on the tombstone, it says he's a professor and a brilliant astrophysicist. Then, you know, Eddie says it again in voiceover that his dad was brilliant. And then we see a scene of him where his dad's being brilliant. You know, it's just, you only really need to tell the audience something once, especially in a teaser. You don't want to hit, be hitting the same note over and over again, because then it feels like too much. Like the audience understands. Yeah. And even in that short sort of video game sequence at the beginning, there were a lot of those redundancies. Uh, for example, a couple of times the pro says pushing the tachometer into the red when before it says tachometer is in the red. And similarly, there's a lot of the telling in terms of the way the driver behaves. For example, the pro says they should feel odd to any sane driver, sort of repeating what we're seeing on screen instead of letting pros be or the action be for what it is. And just to go back to sort of the ADD of it all, I do wonder, like, what is the show about? Because on one hand, we do both agree that the wormhole sequence is probably the strongest. However, in terms of the narrative and the main character, a lot of his character is based on video game, right? The opening is about this sort of dream sequence. Well, not literally dream sequence, but essentially this video game sequence that's being played. And then we flash back to him getting video game trophy. So I'm confused about sort of the, how those two elements uh, blend together. Yeah, I think a teaser needs to leave you on the sense of momentum into having an idea of what's going to happen next. As we're left right now, we get a lot of sense of backstory and interesting threads that could be explored, but there's nothing pushing us forward into any one of those threads. The father's dead and the momentum has kind of stopped. We don't know what's going to happen next. If we instead saw after the funeral that this guy, Eddie, is back in his own basement and he has rebuilt this machine or he has found some way to get into this dimension through a video game or whatever that would be using the elements in play to suggest the forward momentum of the story right but then in your example you are starting with that outcome and i feel like i definitely agree with your sentiment that i did want that connection there or lean into what the show is going to be about because is the show going to be about eddie trying to sort of regain that technology that the dad created or is it more of a tron-esque thing or ready player one thing where he's going to find himself in the video game through that technology. I'm not quite sure what the two have to do with one another as it stands. I also did have a few micro comments or page notes. First one relates to uh, character names, especially in the flashback in the basement. The words young are used to describe both Eddie and Aaron. And when Aaron is not presently a character, using the word young Aaron, when you're also using young Eddie can be confusing because when you do a quick read through, you're not quite sure who's the dad and who's the son when you have young Aaron and young Eddie, uh, because young Eddie makes sense because we see a 22-year-old Eddie. This is the young Eddie. Young Aaron doesn't make sense because, you know, the father has passed away and Aaron right now is in his 50s. So I wouldn't even call him young comparatively to Eddie. 
Yeah. And again, that's, I guess, one of the issues when we are jumping around on timelines and uh, the audience doesn't know quite where they sit, that you're going to run into that kind of thing where they're not really sure who's who and what age and where. It's not a huge issue, but there's a typo on page one yep. where it's like, it's, it seems, seems to be. Yep. Yeah. And, and look, look, there are going to be typos in your script, but page one is the worst place to have a typo because <laughs> it shows someone who's reading it that you haven't checked over things and you haven't been careful about it. You, it's one of those ones where it's not going to come up in a spell check because it is a word. It's just the wrong usage of it. But, you know, you really want to like be careful if you're submitting, especially a small number of pages to really go over everything and make sure it, it's consistent. Absolutely. I had the exact same note and I had another sort of micro note on the front page of the script, the title page of the script. Uh, there's no need to add WGA registered or even the draft date unless, you know, it's an internal document. But in terms of WGA registered, that sort of screams amateur. You don't really need to add that to your pilot script. Yeah, I agree. It's the same thing as putting a copyright symbol on there or anything like that. It's just no one who is a professional writer does that because it's just assumed that no one's going to try to steal their work or that it is already protected in some way. You don't need to advertise that. Right, exactly. By all means, do protect your work, but there's no need to advertise that on the title page of the, the mm -hmm. script. So uh, what makes us want to read on with the script versus not? Well, I don't know. I'm kind of torn. I'm not quite sure what the direction of the show is currently. I'm interested in either end. I am interested in sort of a Tron Ready Player One-esque show. I think that concept could be interesting. On the flip side, the wormhole element, I do want, if that were to be the crux of the show, I do want more of that. Like, is that more like sliders? Is that more like, you know, Man in the High Castle? What angle are you bringing to that other dimension that I haven't seen before? Um, so those are my questions moving forward. Yeah, exactly. I think that in order to really compel me to want to keep turning the pages, I want to see those elements more interconnected in a more logical way in the teaser to suggest, like I said before, that forward momentum of, oh, I understand. Here are the pieces you introduce into place, and now I can automatically see the conflict and the drama that's going to happen between them. I don't want to have to be guessing how is this going to play out. So, you know, I do think it's an interesting concept and there's a lot of different pieces there that could be cool, but they just need to be more cohesive right now in the teaser to really uh, compel the reader. Yeah, I think we both agree that the pieces in a vacuum are interesting or perhaps make us curious to read on, but the puzzle isn't really quite formed in that right. teaser. It's how they fit together that needs uh, some adjusting. And that is it for our first Paper Tease session for the month of October. And winners will be announced at the end of the month in our last episode of the month after we've read another two entries. But if you have a TV pilot teaser yourself of eight pages or less, any format, any genre, you can enter it for free at paperteam.co slash teaser to potentially get feedback on air like those two teasers we just read, as well as earn prizes and be eligible for our Paper Team mentorship. <laughs> All right, let's get into our paper scrap segment. And we're going to be looking at some sort of current events and recent news items that caught our eye about the world of TV writing and the industry itself. And the first one is a Hollywood Reporter article about coverage services that was published at the end of July. That's a hot second ago now, but it is very relevant because it does touch on, among other people, our sponsor, Roadmap Writers. Yeah. So the, the title of this Hollywood Reporter article is Why Are So Many Wannabe Writers Getting Scammed? And this is something, I guess, that's on the edge of a lot of writers' minds when they're submitting to competitions, to coverage services, things like that. I'm like, is this a reputable business? And am I actually going to get something out of it by putting my money into it? And, you know, and it's a good question to have in mind and to be discerning. There were a lot of issues with this article, you know, in our mind. 
Personally, it kind of felt poorly researched, written, and pretty biased as well. You know, they were calling one competition or so as a scam while promoting another, like the blacklist, as reliable. It's not based in any kind of evidence. It's just this writer's, this, you know, journalist's personal opinion about what is good and what isn't. Yeah, I definitely agree with that point. I think it was worth bringing the article on our show specifically to mention how I think we both feel, as you just said, it's probably researched, but also it doesn't quite explain its own points. It doesn't really explain why the blacklist, and again, we're talking about the blacklist website, not the blacklist official feature script list, right? We're talking about the blacklist website where you are paying money to get coverage. The article is not really explaining why that is more beneficial than another service where you're paying essentially the same amount of money to get the same kind of feedback. Exactly. Now, obviously, writers should be wary and only spend their money on something that they feel is valuable to them and do their research. But if someone is spending money on something they're happy with and they're getting results or real connections, it's hard to argue with that. Yeah. And again, it comes down to doing your own research on what those companies do and uh, who those companies are led by. Part of that research should be about what is the success rate? What did those writers go on to do? How much money are you paying for what kind of services? Who are they backed by? What is essentially the track record for that company? So I think that should help and influence you in your decision. Yeah, and I think one of the things to keep in mind is that the real tangible results and benefits that you get from these kind of services and educational things uh, are going to be relationships and connections. That's really what everyone wants when they enter a screenplay competition is to meet a manager or an agent or have someone who's going to help them in their career. If you're entering into competitions where they're overly focused on prize money or some sort of like prizes and flights and things like that, I don't think that those ones are quite as in line with what you really want out of this and maybe aren't quite as reputable. Yeah. And I think similarly paying for coverage in of itself, I don't think should be the end goal. And I think that's where uh, probably the line to me was crossed when they lauded Blacklist, whereas they sort of chastise roadmap writers, when I feel like Blacklist, you are paying you know, a pretty hefty sum of money to host your script and get one piece of feedback on your script. But those readers, you know, they could be anyone. There's no real, I mean, I guess we both know readers for Blacklist. Mm-hmm. And honestly, you know, they're assistants, not to say that they have bad taste or anything, but I'm just saying that you could, you know, might as well do your own writing group or reach out to certain people that you know in your community or other services that can offer a same creative endeavor and creative value that Blacklist. Right. I think there's a difference between paying for comprehensive coverage to get notes and improve your script and then paying for someone to rate your script and try to recommend it onwards. Um, So, you know, really think about what your goal is here. Do you want validation or do you want constructive criticism and feedback to improve yourself? And I I do think for the blacklist, this almost, I don't want to say conflict of interest, but this weird perverse relationship between, okay, so I'm paying let's say $30 to get feedback on my script. That should improve my script, right? But at the same time, as you pointed out, they're going to be rating my script. And I do want that positive note and grade so that people from outside, people I don't know, executives, agents, reps, and so forth, are going to see my script and going to value my script based on that grade. So it's this weird dynamic where they do want you to pay for their notes and feedback, but at the same time, you're expected for the script to be at a level where you would not need that system. 
Right. And the one thing that always kind of like feels weird to me too, is that there's almost a deliberate conflation between the blacklist website where you can pay to host your script and the industry blacklist itself, which are two very different things. And I think a lot of people are confused about the differences between them. Paying to get your your script up in the service isn't going to get it on the industry blacklist that's going to make your career. I believe the end result of getting a high rating on the blacklist website is being included in sort of like some email blasts to a subscriber list. Right. Absolutely. And again, that uh, benefit is subjective. I haven't heard of friends of mine, at least again, we're talking about personal experiences. We're talking about our own, uh, you know, circle of friends, but personally, the people who have made it on to that sort of mailing list, uh, haven't seen, you know, that much uh, momentum just based on that blacklist positivity. Now that's not to say it doesn't lead anywhere and so forth. I don't want to badmouth the blacklist for an hour. I'm just saying to your point that there is a clear difference between, you know, the blacklist official list and the blacklist website. Right. And the point we're trying to reach here is just that this article being so heavily critical of many other or all other coverage services and educational services compared to one it is not based in fact. I think that just in general, the the broad statement should be, be wary and be critical and do your research of anything you're going to throw your money at and see what the actual tangible results are and if they're in line with your goals. Absolutely. Now, moving on to another topic, we wanted to mention some pitching threads or Twitter threads, right? Yes. So there were a couple of really great and informative Twitter threads from a writer called Matthew Fetterman, who I believe is sure running Blood and Treasure on CBS right now. And so he had one about going out for pitches. I believe it was advice that he was giving to one of their writer's assistants who had a pitch. And another really good one about basically just tips for how uh, to run a productive writer's room and and the way in which, you know, breaking a season and and writing on these episodes can be the most effective. So uh, we'll give you those links to those in uh, our show notes, and you can check those out. I, I love these little Twitter threads that come out from these working writers that are always very informative and fun and, and just have these little bite-sized pieces of advice that you can take away. Yeah, the pitching one I found especially valuable because it doesn't just pertain to you going out pitching for your own show as much as it is sort of your behavior uh, also in the room, because in the room, you will be pitching yourself. So I found those pieces of advice very valuable. As uh, Nick mentioned, we will be linking those Twitter threads in our show notes for the episode. Now, our next big topic of the day is going to be diversity in the writer's room and the importance of inclusion. Yeah, so this has been a very hot topic recently. I mean, it always is, but there have been a number of articles written about this. I think the thing that really kicked it off was the Magnum PI showrunner made some comments about how he didn't have any Latino writers on his staff, despite their main character being Latino. And then he was met, you know, quite rightly with a lot of criticism for that. Yeah, even uh, Javi from uh, the Children of Tendu podcast and a well-known TV writer and producer wrote this guest column in The Hollywood Reporter denouncing this BS on this idea of excusing the lack of diversity in the room. So once again, all these links that we were mentioning this episode, we'll be putting it on the show notes. So tune in for that. Yeah, and one of them was a really detailed write-up called As TV Writers Seek Diverse Writing Ranks, Rising Demand Meets Short Supply. And this was published in the New York Times. So the kind of the argument of this article is that shows are trying their best to hire all the diverse writers they can and include them, but their pipeline of diverse writers is running thin. And, you know, showrunners are using this as an excuse to not hire diverse writers. 
Now, this is particularly prevalent at the higher levels of writers, you know, producer and upwards, especially showrunners, where, yes, there aren't as many diverse writers there, because Hollywood has traditionally been a bunch of old white men in these positions of power, and it wasn't until recently that any real concentrated effort was being made to bring some equality and provide access to writers to come up through those lower levels to reach those positions. So this influx of diverse writers we're seeing now at the lower levels hasn't even had the time to work upwards into those co-EP, EP, showrunner positions that you need sort of 50 20 years experience to really take. Yeah. I mean, I feel like there's a couple of things. One is exactly where you brought up this idea that all those people haven't had the experience, but even the people who have the experience are not, or at least up until recently, were not given the chance uh, because this effect where networks and studios and production companies are only giving the same people those chances to, you know, get a show on the air. Because if you do an analysis of those 300 shows on the air, I'm sure you could figure out that 80% of those shows are made by perhaps the same 10 mega producer. So I think that's another danger that we need to address. Exactly. I mean, how does a co-EP become an EP and a showrunner? It doesn't magically level up or evolve like a Pokemon. Someone needs <laughs> to give them an actual opportunity and take that risk. Mm. And I think that that's one of the big issues is these networks have their approved lists of people they want to work with and people they have relationships with. And if you're going back in time, those are largely still these old white men showrunners who have a number of successful shows. And so they're not taking the same risks on diverse writers and giving them a chance. Yeah, I think on the plus side, though, we do have uh, more of those sort of older white guys giving a chance to diversity and promoting from within. Uh, they're working a lot of the time with the diversity programs, but they themselves are championing sort of the new voices. Exactly. Like we don't want to paint all older white male showrunners with the same brush. <laughs> <laughs> there are obviously a number of people who are doing their part for that. You got like, people... We will be the old uh, white <laughs> showrunner pretty soon. Yeah. And hopefully we will be doing our part for diversity <laughs> in the way that you know Glenn Mazzara, who ran The Walking Dead, uh, Damien, I think he's doing Dark Tower now. Kurt Sutter from Sons of Anarchy and now Mayans. These are people who are actually really making an effort to be inclusive and to promote from within and to give these kind of opportunities to create shows and to run shows to talented, diverse writers that they're working with and they're mentoring. There's also this famous, quote unquote, uh, infamous saying about how the pool is wide but not deep. And that can excuse uh, some people for not really making an effort of finding that pool of talent, uh, no pun intended. But that idiom is sort of disingenuous because it doesn't really mean anything. It's sort of an excuse to explain the current state without really providing a solution. Uh, so I think even like Amy Berg, I remember I read uh, a few weeks ago, Amy Berg tweeted about how herself, she didn't really understand what the pool is wide but not deep means because it's just an excuse for the lack of sort of the effort being put on. Right. Like, what are they trying to say? That there's a lot of diverse writers, but none of them are talented? Like, that's incredibly yeah. offensive and dumb. Like, exactly. it's just like, a, it's a myth, really. Like, it just, I think it is, again, them not being willing to take risks and trust people that they haven't traditionally worked with before. So there were a couple of really great quotes from this New York Times article that I wanted to share with you guys from people in the industry who have perspectives on this. And one of them was an exec named Jamelia Hunter at ABC. And she says about you know TV writing and this industry in general, it's an industry of privileged apprenticeship. Economically, there is not a pipeline for them and them being diverse TV writers, people who come from perhaps disadvantaged backgrounds or different backgrounds. Right. I think like even us, uh, not to sort of uh, do a one-on-one -on -one comparison directly, but even us as immigrants, I, at least for myself, I'll just speak for me for a second. I knew that 
that, you know, I was able to like move to the States, but relocating to another country is not without expenses. When I think of uh, that quote, I also think of all the people who cannot move to LA because obviously you have to be in LA to be a TV writer, but that also means that some people just cannot move to LA. So I think you got to remind yourself that to be able to become a TV writer, you need to go through that gauntlet of being an assistant and essentially being sort of a lowly paid intern or no, you know, sometimes not even paid intern to be able to even get a shot at becoming a TV writer. Uh, so that's something that people uh, should remind themselves of. Yeah, that automatically sets the bar at a certain place that keeps people out. The most convenient thing to be is someone from a wealthy family who already lives in LA who can go and do an internship for free and doesn't have to worry about accommodation or working a full-time job or paying off their college loans. So, you know, um, there is a certain correlation with the kinds of people who are able to do that and the people who aren't. And that's what's just at a base level keeping people out of this industry. Yeah. Think of all those expenses that we have to go through, like obviously rent. If you have family in LA, you don't have to pay rent. A car, maybe you can use a parent's car instead of an actual car that you have to buy yourself medical insurance, you know, health insurance, car insurance, dental insurance, any kind of insurance. Also this accessibility, because if people are living in LA, that probably means that through the family or your own friends, you already have that connection built in because you've lived there your whole life. Whereas if you're not from LA or you don't have that backdrop economically or socially, you're not going to have that access from the get-go. Yeah. And there was a discussion in the article that even programs that they're running to specifically promote you know, people of color into working in these executive ranks, these people in these industries, they find themselves going to industries like tech and like business and economics that just pay better and are a better lifestyle for people rather than subjecting themselves to the grind of this industry industry that we have. Yeah. And I think there's not many solutions to it. One of the main solutions I can think of is actively engaging the lower levels, but also not just promoting, but simply giving better working conditions to those lower level people so that if you are getting those positions, you're not, you know, obligatory to suffer through a poverty just to yeah, pay for especially uh, wages. I think that's one of the biggest things exactly. is like eliminating more or less unpaid internships, having some sort of stipend there at the very least, paying assistance a living wage so that it is eligible or viable for anyone, not just someone who already comes from a background of privilege. Absolutely. So again, going back into some of the quotes from this article, there's one from Tracy Scott Wilson, who is a supervising producer on The Americans. She mentors younger colleagues, and she said that these she's met these white male writers who believe that they were passed over because a minority or a woman got their slot, even though in reality, other white men just ended up being hired instead. And she says that, you know, this mythology out there is poisonous. People are believing that, and maybe their agents are telling them that, and they're really doing the world a disservice by blaming it on diversity slots or whatever you want to call it, and not just... Sometimes you get passed over for a job. Sometimes it's a condition. There is this belief in a lot of entry-level white male writers' heads that, oh, this isn't, industry is discriminating against me now, and that's just BS. Yeah, I, yeah obviously it's, it's BS. Uh, I think that myth also comes from this idea that you are hired in a room to be yourself because you know it's all about the brand. It's about the diversity of voice and what you're bringing to the table. So if they already have a bunch of white people, they don't, well, obviously I'm oversimplifying here, but the, the myth at least tends to point to the idea that if there's a bunch of white dudes, then they won't need another white dude. To some extent, that is true. But the reality is they need that sort of ensemble of people. When you're casting a room, when you're setting up a writer's room, you can't just have 20 blank slates of the same people. You need some right. diversity. And if there was a greater effort to have broader diversity in the upper levels of the room, then maybe there wouldn't have to be so much emphasis on bringing diversity into that staff writer level slot. So I think fixing that problem at its systemic root is going to get Absolutely. rid of that kind of barrier to entry as it well. Is, it is a 
top down. I think we both agree. It is on some level a top down issue where if we had some high level people that are diverse, then by definition, we would have a more diverse writer's room. I think there have been some studies showing that women and people of color do hire a more diverse writer's room. Exactly. And there's another quote from David Slack, another writer who said, if guys are mad about this stuff, they're mad about things being slightly less unfair in their favor. So even with all of these diversity programs in place, the fact remains that the majority of TV writers in Hollywood are white men and still continue to be coming up through the ranks. It's just that scales have tipped ever so slightly back in the other direction. So there are programs that are starting to be put in place to, to remedy this. One network that kind of came up with something was FX, which in 2015 was called out for having the least diverse roster of directors in particular. Since then, the number of FX series directed by white men has dropped from 88% to 51%. So, you know, John Landgraf and the rest of the executives at FX really made a concerted effort to discover new talent and trust in these emerging talents and promote them rather than sticking with their, oh, I'm only going to hire someone who's already directed like 10 years worth of TV. And that has led to quality shows like Atlanta being made, really. Exactly. Look at the like Hero Mirai is incredible and like is going to go on to have an amazing career in Hollywood. And maybe he wouldn't have ever had that chance if there hadn't been this kind of like push to be more open-minded about who they hire. Now let's look at some of the programs that have been mentioned uh, recently. So recently in the trades, an AMC diversity program was announced, headed up by LaToya Morgan, who we're hoping to have on the podcast in the future soon. So she is a high-level co-EP EP on Into the Badlands and uh, has an overall deal there. And so she's going to oversee this inclusion initiative for AMC and mentor diverse emerging writers for development programs. And I think this is a great development because we've seen broadcast networks have these diversity programs for a while, but now cable networks are starting to take these steps too. So HBO's had a program for a little bit. So it's good to see that AMC is now stepping up to the plate. And I do wonder how long before some of the streaming networks and studios might step in, if at all. Yeah, I mean, just to go back quickly on the broadcast uh, front, those diversity programs were shepherded by the studios of those equivalent production companies like Warner Brothers and uh, NBC. Uh, those weren't as much the network. I mean, there's definitely a network mandate, but those were also production companies. So the fact that now cable networks are doing it themselves, I think speaks to the way TV has evolved to sort of an IPs game where people want to control what they're producing as opposed to renting out someone else's property to broadcast on their network. So now we have HBO, now we have AMC. I'm sure we'll have like Lifetime and other cable networks, uh, hopefully Netflix, as you brought up, like Hulu, all those places that once they get to produce their own shows, will offer those diversity opportunities. Another initiative that we've seen recently is the company Monkey Paw, which is Jordan Peele's company. They have basically set up open submissions for diverse writers to send their content in. And we'll, we'll put the link in the show notes for you guys as well. And what I find interesting about that is that we saw Amazon recently shut down their open submission policies. It seemingly didn't produce much for them in the five or so years that it was running. But, you know, that Amazon program was just a general all comers, shoot your stuff in, we'll see what happens. Whereas this monkey paw one is definitely uh, geared towards bringing in more diverse voices. And again, just like taking away that barrier to entry to people from those backgrounds who might not be able to get that internship in an agency and, and get in that way and that kind of thing, just putting their material out there. So I think that's great. Yeah, I do agree. Uh, that's fantastic. And I'm looking forward to see sort of the progress of those different programs and see how they evolve, especially considering that, you know, it's 2018 going on 2019. It's about time that we have those uh, those platforms. I feel like those platforms should have existed before Twitter even existed, yeah. you know, 15, 20 years ago. And now those avenues are finally out there. So that's great. 
Uh, one more thing that was announced recently was Michael B. Jordan has really pushed for this inclusion rider deal with Warner Media. So that's Warner Bros., HBO, Turner, all that kind of thing. You guys might be familiar with the the term inclusion rider from the Oscars last year, where Frances McDormand, I think, basically just got up and said two words, inclusion rider, or that was you know the end of her speech. And what it is, is, you know, the quote from the article, Warner Media's policy, which will also apply to HBO and Turner, focuses on having women, people of color, members of the LGBTQ communities, folks with disabilities, and other underrepresented groups in greater numbers in front of and behind the camera. So it's essentially a commitment to, you know, in the early stages of the production process, engaging with writers, producers, directors to create a plan for implementing diversity and inclusion in all of their projects, providing opportunities for these individuals from underrepresented groups at all levels, you know, not just writers, not just directors, we're talking people on set in all the departments, wherever it happens to be. And they're going to issue an annual report on the progress of that. So it's basically just a public commitment to diversity on behalf of a company and holding themselves accountable. Yeah. And another essay that I wanted to bring to the attention of our listeners is this two-part analysis about the problem that a lot of writers' rooms have about not accepting pregnant women as writers in the room. And the essay is called TV Writers Rooms Have a Mother of a Problem. It was published on CNN a couple of months ago, but it's sort of this two-part series digging into the real issue that not a lot of people are aware of, this idea that some showrunner, for whatever reason, don't value the presence of pregnant women in a writers' room because they're afraid they're going to compromise the work in the writers' room against their family life, which is, you know, beyond absurd. Yeah. Uh, and there's a quote from the article that says, uh, this comes from a, an upper a level writer of nearly 20 years of experience in the industry who told CNN, quote, I know so many women that go into interviews and take off their wedding rings and purposefully do not talk about children. If you're pregnant, you bundle up with multiple layers so no one can tell you're pregnant. When and how to disclose your pregnancy to an employer is a decision unique to every woman in any industry and extends to women at all levels of their career, especially in the res room. So this is a fascinating sort of analysis into a real problem that not many people are aware if you're not in a rise room, but if you are in a rise room, then you're very much aware. If you have at least any experience in a room, then you know that this is an ongoing issue. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you can see how showrunners would discriminate against people if they're worried that their pregnancy is going to take them away from the room or they need to be doing medical tests or, you know, whatever it happens to be. But it's obviously ridiculous because these people are professionals and they're going to be doing their work. And I've been very lucky to witness a lot of great inclusion of pregnant women in writers' rooms. I've seen firsthand um, the show that I worked on just recently. There was a pregnant writer in there. And then when I was working for the literary management company, a woman was hired onto the staff of a show like a week before she was about to to give birth. And so they were doing the, the showrunner interviews at the time and hired her and then she gave birth and they, they included all of that in you know into account for having her on the show. And that was never a consideration or an issue for them. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, exactly. I've also been blessed on my own shows to have people who actually accommodate those people, you know, who have children. Uh, maybe they bring in a babysitter, whatever the case may be. And just to go back on that article, I, I think a lot of people should read that second part of the article because it's all about those high-level showrunners who are actually working 
to improve the living conditions of mothers in the restroom. So they bring in daycare, you know, they help uh, the schedule of the room. And some rooms, you know, you don't need to work until 2 a.m. to finish an episode, right? Yeah. Like that's sort of like all in comment on the showrunner and those people at the top. So if those people are aware of those issues, then that's only going to improve the conditions of everyone involved, not just mothers, but really the entire writing staff. So I implore everyone uh, listening to this to like at least check out those articles. Uh, they're worth your time. And now let's move on to the 2018 Emmys. What an incredible night it was. I don't know if I'm being facetious or not. I don't even know myself. Uh, (laughs) What did you think of the Emmys? Yeah, I thought they were interesting. I think there were some surprises there for me. There were definitely some some well-deserved things too. You know, the usual thing, a few snubs. Interesting fact, I, I just joined the Television Academy Ooh. right after the, the uh. Emmys. So maybe next year I can I can nab a ticket to be there, but I, I managed to, to get in, so I'll be voting next year. Sorry, are you saying that even though I can't blame you this year, I'll definitely blame you next year exactly. for the results. All right. I think uh, I think that's what's happening. In terms of the drama, if we're just looking at the one hours for a second, or dramas, I should say, because uh, Maisel is not a half hour. Mm-hmm. Game of Thrones, as the winner, I felt was uh, kind of strange. I mean, I guess yeah. it is very obvious in the sense that every single winner is always going to be the same uh, from now on to perpetuity. <laughs> but, you know, if you look at the the rest of the contenders, like Americans uh, or even the crown, um, it's kind of an odd um, choice. Yeah, I, I feel like Game of Thrones is is kind of, obviously it's it's a good show. Everyone enjoys it, but it feels like it's one because it was popular rather than it won right. because it was is a consistently brilliant storytelling, you know, kind of thing. Uh, whereas some of these other shows I think are really innovative and really interesting and, and I don't know, it's hard to say. I think Game of Thrones has had its fair share of Emmys and maybe they should step aside and let someone else take yeah, the spotlight. I don't know who proposed that idea at some point, but you know, a winner shouldn't win twice in a row. I feel like that's an interesting idea of you can be eligible, you know, every other year, but that way we can at least have no back to back to back to back winners like we've had so many times in Emmy history. Right. It was like uh, Silicon Valley and Veep just swept every comedy. Yeah, for Modern Family five, before years, that, Sopranos, Mad Men. It's, it's always the same. That said, in terms of the comedy winner, I do love the idea that Mrs. Maisel won for best comedy. Yeah, and not well, because. It swept. I mean, it won five Emmys that night. It's. I mean, it is pretty much, well, at least last year, it was one of my favorite shows. I'm very excited for the second season. Fun fact, the premiere of the second season uh, was shot in Paris, so uh, my mm-hmm. hometown. But yeah, I was very happy that it swept uh, all the Emmys. That said, is it really comedy? I mean, it is funny. Don't get me wrong, but it's a one hour. I'm going to stick right. by this. Idea. Yeah, we always have those questions. You know, what was it when The Martian won Best Comedy at Golden <laughs> Globes? Globes? It just yes. kind of became a bit farcical at that point, but... Uh, it's interesting. I mean, I think that category too was a little, I don't think there was as many contenders in the comedy category as there were in the drama one. I could have seen it going to any of those drama shows. For me, it was really between maybe Maisel, Atlanta and Barry. I think the rest were, you know, solid, but not Emmy contenders. So it, it doesn't surprise me in a way that, that it won there. But, uh, you know, obviously everyone's been raving about it. So I mean, it's excellent. I would, I would put, you know, Barrio Atlanta as the best comedy, just because in my yeah. mind, Mrs. Maisel is a one-hour drama shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because it is funny at times and it is humorous doesn't make it a comedy. That said, you know, it's up to, I guess, the studio to send in whichever category they see fit uh, those shows. Exactly. So, and maybe that's why they submitted it there, because they knew that they were going to have a harder time in the drama category. So much of this is strategy and politics as well. I was very happy that Henry Winkler finally won an Emmy. Yes, after all these years, and he deserves it too. He's great in Barry. I was very happy to see that. 
Barry is an excellent show. In terms of the writing, we can talk about this for a second. The pilot Mrs. Maisel won for Best Writing for a Comedy Series. Is this one of those things where I know people have this, these statistics that, for example, in the Oscars, the best picture always wins best director as well, like 95% of the time or something. I wonder if there's a, a strong correlation between writing Emmy and best series as well. I think that's true to some extent, but in terms of the drama series, The Americans won, which I would argue deserves the best drama win overall. That said, how much of the Game of Thrones win was because of its writing as opposed to just this juggernaut yeah. of a show? I think it is more the production value of Game of Thrones and right. just the sheer spectacle of it. And obviously everyone loves the kind of soapy drama and the characters and the acting. I, I do not think the writing is one of the strongest points of Game of Thrones. It has its moments, but uh, consistently, obviously there are other shows that, that do that better. And, you know, the Americans is one that's been praised for a very long time for that. So I'm glad to see them getting some recognition. By the way, I'm glad that we're spending this time uh, together because, hold on, I got, I got an announcement. I'm, I'm getting down on one knee right now. I'm saying, <laughs> Nick, I'm uh, using my speech right now to ask you, do you yes, want to marry uh, me? Uh, no, I'm sorry. I'm, uh, Whoa. <laughs> I was going to give you a permanent resident uh, opportunity and <laughs> citizenship and you declined it. No. Uh, yes. Uh, but that was one of the most memorable moments of the Emmys was director Glenn Weiss proposing live on air to his girlfriend. I think that that kind of captured the attention of the nation and people's hearts. And it was very sweet. It's interesting because he won for directing best variety show i think he's won set like the last seven or eight years in a row like this dude sweeps that category every time because he always directs the the emmys and the tonys and the oscars and all that kind of thing well maybe not the emmys because he's on it right now but <laughs> the tonys and the oscars at the very least camera b right now so, on me. i wonder if he's just like this is getting boring i gotta figure out a way to spice exactly. it up this time i'm gonna propose. He knows he's a specialist of live tv i mean but he, he, knows. he literally like did a shout out to the director of the emmys being like you know, whatever his name was, like, John, I'm going to need a little more time for this. You know, <laughs> he knows how it all runs. So just a funny little inside thing, but very sweet. It definitely wasn't played off. Let's just say that. Yeah. Now, I will mention uh, something that I tweeted uh, during the, the Emmys. And that is, if you look at the outstanding series Emmy wins for OTT services like Hulu, Amazon, Netflix, two of those have won and one has not. Netflix has never won an Emmy for best series in the history of the Emmys. Hulu and Amazon both have now, uh, which is interesting because like years and years ago, whenever, you know, Netflix premiered House of Cards and all those, you know, premium shows, Orange is the New Black and so forth, you would think that by now Netflix would have won not just an Emmy, but all the Emmys and actually the first Emmy for both category. Not the case. I mean, I'm sure it's won a number of Emmys in other categories, but certainly not the best series. So that's interesting to note. And, you know, it, it does seem that it's been a long time since broadcast has ever won an Emmy too. Uh, I, I know that This Is Us was up for the Emmy and it was perhaps even a contender. And that was, I think, an interesting spectacle to, for people to see these broadcast shows back in contention just because cable and particularly HBO and that kind of thing uh, and now streaming services have been sweeping these kind of awards. Yeah, you got to either make people cry or have a pretty spectacular uh, dragon scenes in your show to win. <laughs> Why not both? <laughs> Why not both? Yes. And that's a wrap on our Emmys discussion for this year. Join us again next year when Alex will blame me for all the people not winning. Can't wait. All right, before we go, our paper tease competition is still open for submission. So if you have a TV pilot teaser of eight pages or less, any format, any genre, you can enter it for free at paperteam.co slash teaser to potentially get feedback on air, win prizes from our sponsors, and be eligible for a paper team mentorship. So thanks to our listeners for tuning in. You can get all the show notes for this episode, including all the article links at paperteam.co slash 109. And if you want to leave us a review, that would be super swell. You can do that at paperteam.co slash iTunes. And all those reviews uh, will attract more awesome people like you to listen to our voices. 
Thanks again to this episode's sponsor, Roadmap Writers, who in just two years have helped more than 50 writers find representation. So visit RoadmapWriters.com to see their full slate of educational programs. Paper Team listeners can use the code ROADMAP, all caps, all one word, to save $15 off your first program. And as always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes or questions, you can send them to ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week? Next week, we're going to cover the topic of how to choose your next TV sample and have a discussion about what the best next step for you as a writer and your career is at any given moment. Yeah, I just use a roulette wheel. That's uh, what I do. <laughs> Put a ball in, uh, roll it. And, I, re- uh, I read tea it. leaves. That's, that's how Ooh. I read. Yeah. Well, Maybe we'll have some more practical advice for think, our listeners. Uh, yeah, I think a l- better tips yeah. next week. <laughs> <laughs> See you guys then.